Hello everyone and welcome back to the GMS podcast. I'm John Chaplin and I'm delighted to be joined today by none other than top shipping barrister James M. Turner QC of Quadrant Chambers. Quadrant is one of the leading international commercial dispute sets covering many areas including shipping. On Twitter you'll find James at shipbrief and I would urge you to follow his eclectic mix of wildlife photography, tales of the voluminati and left-leaning political commentary. James, thank you very much for talking to us. Let's start at the beginning. What steered you towards maritime law and eventually taking silk? Well, I'm a linguist and so I had always wanted to practice in a field of law that was going to give some exposure for languages. And the one good piece of careers advice I had was apply to commercial sets because they do private international disputes. And so I applied to a lot of chambers that did cross-border commercial disputes. And I happened to get pupillage in one that did shipping. And it was as easy as that. I see. So you came to shipping via the law as opposed to a seafaring background. That's right. Um, Coincidentally, on my way through my education, I had done a couple of episodes of navigation at school, I was in the cadet force and in the naval section, and so we had to pass a navigation exam before we were allowed to give it up again. So I did that as quickly and as well as I could, and that's been moderately helpful, although I've learned far more about navigation in practice as a barrister than I ever knew as a cadet. And you've been kept pretty busy sorting out disputes over the years? Uh, yes. Things fluctuate um, over time, and for the first... 15 years of this century, I did uh, a lot of shipbuilding disputes, and I still do quite a lot of shipbuilding work, but there aren't that many disputes currently, because right now all is well in the world of shipbuilding. Uh, Everybody wants their ships built, relatively few people are trying to get out of their contracts, and so there just aren't that many current uh, shipbuilding disputes. I have a few that are rumbling on, but uh, but not so many. So l- latterly, there have been more, oddly, more collisions, which is uh, something that I grew up with, so to speak, in uh, in pupillage in the very early years of practice. Um, there were then almost none for about 10 years, but since I've taken silk, I've been involved in quite a few. Uh, and then there are charter party disputes and other non-shipping commercial disputes. I was wondering, do healthier freight rates also mean more disputes? Or do you tend to see more work in a downturn? I, I, I think the, the primary driver of how busy we are is what the market is doing rather than, uh, and whether if it's um, going up or it's going down, then people will be trying to get out of um, existing commitments because they can make more money elsewhere. Or they'll be trying like mad to hold on to existing commitments because they will not make as much money elsewhere. And that has been the, the story of life at the shipping bar since I started in the early 90s. Uh, and the 90s were, was a fairly flat period for uh, the shipping market. It was never really very busy. One could be busy from time to time on a, on a big case, but on, on the whole, things sort of rumbled along. And then it started to pick up in the early years of the century as the market got hotter and hotter. And you remember the disputes which arose with Scandinavian charter parties, which for tax reasons used to have a, a clause in them saying that you could you could have a, a purchase option as the charterer. Uh, and the purchase option was fixed at some ludicrously high price, so in practice it would never be exercised. But the market got so hot that the value of these ships actually started to exceed the 
price that was put into the Charter Party, and there were a whole series of disputes, um, because no one had ever intended that these be exercised, but uh, they were, and there were quite a few arbitrations about them. Uh, and then, of course, in 2008, the wheels fell off, and there were three big areas of shipping practice, which were then um, flooded with work, which were forward freight agreements, shipbuilding contracts, and uh, contracts of freightment. Did you find yourself involved in the charter party disputes that occurred following the 2008 financial crash? Uh, no, I was mostly mostly sucked into the, the shipbuilding side okay. and did dozens and dozens of um, shipbuilding arbitrations, most of which sadly ended not very well for the shipyards, um, but they have certainly upped their game since then. I think that was a very formative period, particularly for the Chinese yards, mm. um, many of which were new and had never experienced a time when things hadn't been good. I think 2000 and really 2010 to 2015 was a was a very difficult period for, for many of them. You've also become quite a well-known legal voice in ship recycling. What's your view on what's wrong with the current regulations? I think in short what is wrong is that uh, and it's also the reason why it got so messy is that people start with the best of intentions and the intentions underlying the the one international agreement that almost nobody seems to talk about uh, but it actually is the one that's in force is the Basel Convention and the idea that the first world should not take its waste and dump it in the third world is a very good one uh, and the intention behind that is absolutely uh, spot on and the the Basel ban amendment uh, is just the latest tightening of that regime and again one one can't argue with it as a matter of principle i mean the, the notion that the first world should be able to dump its toxic waste in the third world is an appalling one but uh, the difficulty lies with the practicality uh, because there aren't the facilities in the western world aren't sufficient facilities to dismantle ships full stop and they just they just aren't enough. Um, so one can exaggerate the scale of the problem because, of course, there aren't as many ships carrying, for example, EU flags. Um, and as you know, EU flagged ships have to be recycled in one of the um, facilities on the EU list. Uh, but um, so that's less of a problem than it might be. It's even less of a problem because. Um, Many European owners will sell ships before they get to end of life. Uh, they will sell them knowing that they're going to be reflagged into non-EU registries. And so they're not caught by the, the ship recycling regulation. Um, they're still capable of being caught by the waste shipments regulation. Um, but uh, anybody who knows the regulations knows well enough not to decide to recycle their ship while it's at a European port. Could you say that Basel just isn't a good fit for shipping? Well, you can, you can make that case. You could also make the case that shipping hasn't fitted itself terribly well to Basel. Um, the, uh, the, the, the difficulty with Basel is that its paradigm is that the waste is sitting in country A um, and somebody wants to take it to country B, possibly via country C. Uh, and so you have this um, mechanism put in place that A, B and C all have to agree to the transport of waste and 
uh, and off it goes. But ships don't work quite like that because a ship may be in country A this week, but it'll be in country Z the week after, or in country um, N not very long after that. So it's a slightly odd instrument to apply to ships at all. When it comes to dealing with hazardous waste, do you think the method and oversight should be up to the local laws of the country where the ship is being recycled? Well, I think it's a very good starting point. I mean, in, in principle, nobody has the right to insist that, or no one country has the right to insist that a, a, another country does anything um, because they're all sovereign. But on the other hand, if you have signed up to Basel, and almost everybody in the world has signed up to Basel, the, the obvious exceptions being uh, Taiwan for uh, obvious reasons, and the other less obviously being the United States. Having signed up to Basel, well, then you've accepted that little um, encroachment on your, your sovereignty. And getting on the wrong side of the regulations can be very serious. Uh, there was the recent case of a Norwegian owner having his jail sentence for illegal scrapping confirmed. Would you agree that the current regulations are something of a nightmare for owners to navigate? That's right. It, it, it is a minefield. And it's not just in this country. I mean, one reads in the trade press quite regularly of um, ship, uh, there was a ship owner in Hamburg that was raided last year. And I think for the very big players, there's also a, a, quite a serious reputational overhead um, if, if, they, um, if they don't get it absolutely right. Uh, on top of that, of course, there is the, the ever-present threat of conventional litigation, and firms like Lee Day have made quite a specialism of going after well-known names, particularly where workers have been injured um, in the in the course of recycling, and what you say is is um, absolutely right that there have been huge strides in in health and safety, uh, as there had to be, in many yards uh, in Alang uh, and elsewhere. There's at least one Bangladeshi yard that's also got Hong Kong um, compliance certified. But what should ship owners do to manage their risk when recycling? and protect themselves from possible future legal action? Well, it, it depends um, whether you want to approach it positively or negatively, really. Uh, I think if you don't want to be held liable, which is the negative approach, then um, you have to bear in mind that merely because you no longer own the ship when it is taken to the yard, that may not be an answer to a claim brought against you. It may be... Uh, and this hasn't been tested yet, but it may be that you can protect yourself to some extent, for example, by if you do sell a ship for recycling, requiring that it go to one of a number of named yards or to a yard which is Hong Kong certified or whatever, and in, in, in a, an effort to take at least the minimum reasonable steps uh, to increase the chances that it will be responsibly and safely handled in the recycling phase and recognize that someone may come after you if you don't take that step. The more positive way in this day and age is to say, well, it is consistent with ESG aspirations to pick a yard which has a good reputation, the right certification, to send a supervisor to, just as one sends a supervisor to watch a ship being built to send a supervisor to watch it being dismantled to make sure that it's being done in the right way, 
I know that your good offices offer a responsible ship owners package. There are uh, quite a few industry initiatives to encourage that sort of thing. The, the Ship Recycling Transparency Initiative, and there are several responsible ship uh, recycling uh, standards and initiatives. So they're not hard to find. I don't think you really have an excuse anymore um, to say, oh, well, it's all terribly difficult and nobody does it and all the rest of it. You are now taking a choice. Uh, and I think everybody accepts, everybody in the business will accept, that at some point you're going to have to recycle your ship uh, and turn its components back into components that can be used in other ships or for other purposes. And to try and get that done in a responsible way, both in terms of the environment and in terms of the health and safety of the workers who are, who are working on it, is something which can be pitched as being ESG compliant and, in good old-fashioned terms, a good thing. And the, the best thing one can do, possibly, is to have it recycled in a European yard, but for reasons we're both very familiar with, that can be extremely difficult. In the case of some ships, impossible, because there are no, in the case of the very biggest ships, there are no yards on the EU list that can accommodate um, the very biggest vessels, even if there is the theoretical deadweight capacity. That can be difficult even for uh, vessels like Panamax's. So I think there are some modest points to be won and an awful lot of points to be lost in the choices that are made um, so far as one's end-of-life ship is concerned. And I, I, every sympathy for a ship owner, you, you've got an asset which can realise some money at the end of its life. So you've, you've really got to be thinking about your age profile of your tonnage, to put it in the most neutral way, um, when it's about midlife and, and planning ahead, I imagine. I mean, I'm not a, a ship manager, obviously. I deal with, with things when they've gone wrong, for the most part. Uh, but if you find yourself with your foot in the in the trap now, you kind of put it there with your eyes open um, because it is perfectly possible to, to do the right thing. James, you've spoken before about the need for a kind of counterweight in the public discourse about ship recycling, which very often paints a negative picture, and those describing it are apparently unaware or unwilling to accept the positive changes that are taking place. Do you think the industry should offer a counterweight to these arguments? Well, yes, I think the industry should. And periodically, the, the BBC, for example, who did their, that very powerful uh, documentary, Breaking Bad, uh, will come and want to talk to the industry. And I think one knows that there are journalists who are interested in this sort of thing. There's the, the NGO um, shipbreaking platform, which is obviously very well known. I think it's relatively unlikely that the um, shipbreaking platform would be interested in cooperating on a sort of best practice video because that's not what they're um, in the, the business of doing, uh, which is fine. Um, but I think to, to put together a package to show how the concerns raised by things like Breaking Bad, people like uh, NGO Shipbreaking Platform, um, are met in the real world by responsible operators. It would be a, a valuable piece of public information. Um, it's probably not going to sell many copies, but at least there will be something to provide a counterweight. 
Um, and I think as recycling yards come to experience that there is money to be made in in doing the job properly, things may things things must change. I mean, they're going to have to change because so much of the world's tonnage is going to have to be recycled in the next two or three decades um, if we're ever going to get anywhere close to carbon neutral or, or anything like it um, with the with the, the world's fleet. James, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us on the podcast. And thank you for listening. Please do get in touch with your thoughts and feedback. We'll be back in your playlist shortly.